Hey everybody, JB here. Thank you for joining me on the Traparaka 101 podcast. This is episode number three, featuring our good friend Brendan Mayer. We are super excited to have Brendan on. Uh, going to tell you a little bit about him, take care of a couple housekeeping things, and then get on to the interview. One thing you need to know is that you can now listen to the Traparaka 101 podcast on Spotify. Yes, we are on Spotify. We're, we are working on getting on a iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, uh, all those kind of places. But for right now, you can find us uh, on our website, traprock101.com, or on Spotify. And like I said, more destinations for you to listen are on the way. So, uh, Brennan Mayer, I have known Brennan for about five years now. I first met him when he and his dad, Peter, uh, appeared on the Old Pirates and Poets podcast. Dammit Earl set up that interview, and it turned out to be... uh, to be one of the top two or three highlights uh, of, of those 150 episodes that we did together, uh, it, it really kind of changed a lot of things, that interview. Uh, we became really good friends with Brendan after that. Uh, myself, Dammit Earl, and Daniel Diaz have all got to know Brendan pretty well. Uh, done, done Probably done a half dozen shows with him since then. We've had him in Texas several times. And uh, we've got to hang out with him in Key West and at the surf bar and in fun places like that. Uh, you put you folks probably know Brendan uh, as the son of Coral Reefer lead guitar player Peter Mayer, as a uh, outstanding singer songwriter in his own right. Um, and and as you'll hear, Brendan has grown up in the Parrothead Trap Rock community. Um, his dad joined the Coral Reefer band the same year that Brendan was born, so he has a very unique perspective and outlook. On the whole community, the genre, he has some very interesting takes on uh, on the history of of everything and where the future is taking us. Uh, some of the things we talk about in this, it's a really long interview, about an hour and ten minutes. Some of the things we talk about uh, include his time touring with Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band as a featured artist. Um, the role of non-trop rock music in the trap rock community uh and Brendan probably fits in that category along with several others that we talk about uh we also talk about the music business in general we have some really interesting uh Brendan has some really interesting thoughts about how you know merchandise and uh, streaming sites and all that are affecting artists livelihood and lots and lots of more fun stuff so uh, I hope you enjoy this interview half as much as I did because uh, I think it's uh, really great and a lot of interesting stuff um, we do have a few sound problems. Um, our internet connection was not the best. I went in and, and cleaned up the interview as best I could, but there are a few places, uh, really honestly more than a few, where there's a little bit of a delay or there's a little bit of buffering dropping out of the conversation. Hopefully it's not too annoying and uh, doesn't affect your enjoyment of the conversation. Uh, so, yeah, that's it. Don't forget to find us, on one, find us online at triperock101.com. Uh, tell us about your friends, share our posts on social media because we want more people to discover this podcast and uh, we should be on Apple Podcast pretty soon. So here we go. Please enjoy uh, the Trop Rock 101 podcast, episode number three, featuring Mr. Brendan Mayer. Yeah, so um, I've literally grown up alongside my dad's career with Jimmy Buffett. Uh, that is how I know of Jimmy and have come to be a part of this crazy world. My dad joined the Coral Reefer Band in 1989. I was born in September of that year, so I literally grew up on the road. Uh, My mom was really good about taking us out to see dad and getting a taste of what he did for a living. 
saw a lot of crazy things that I was probably too young to understand in those early years, but it was awesome. It was just like so exciting to be part of that whole crazy traveling circus. And uh, I owe a lot to that association. Uh, Jimmy's been a wonderful mentor to me in a lot of ways, and he's been an incredibly supportive boss to my dad and to me at, at certain times. So that's, that's how I got into the whole trap rock thing. Yeah. Uh, you were, you were telling yeah. me before I screwed up and forgot to hit record, uh, that <laughs> back in the day, uh, guys from the Coral Reefer band, the guys and girls of the Coral Reefer band as club Trini would actually come out in the parking lot and play the tailgate party. Yeah. Yeah. When we were talking, Talking before I mentioned that's kind of my first memory of there being an offshoot of what Jimmy did. And I, I know there have always been people who were inspired by Jimmy's music since he started you know, in the early seventies and had, had tried to write songs or play songs in, in that style. But my first memories of trop rock being a thing where it was really club training in the parking lot. So I'm pretty sure they, right after they, the band would do sound check they would hop in carts driven by Charleston Alley, carrying a PA in tow out into, I think it was like literally in the concessions area. And this is, must've been once people had gone in from their tailgates into the venue and it was like the pre-show party and it, it was packed. Like we'd be huddled, my sister and I would be huddled in the back on one of the golf carts, just kind of nervously watching. But I, I remember it was this incredible organic, like street festival type thing Coral Reefer variety show. I, I must have gone on for 45 minutes to an hour every show day. And people would be up and dancing with their drinks and the band, they would all get to showcase their individual talents. So Nadir would sing, you know, some Bob Marley or some beautiful Ralph McDonald songs like Where is the Love or just the two of us. And my dad would sing his originals because at this point he was really kicking off his own solo career. Um, you'd have Mike Utley and Robert Greenwich, of course, who were the masterminds behind the whole club journey thing, play their instrumentals and people would be dancing. And it was just, I remember it being a really joyful, organic thing. And it, it must've gone on for a few years. I remember when it finally stopped and my dad said, yeah, you know, unfortunately, logistically, it's just, it's not going to work anymore. And I get it. You know, it must've been a, a huge <laughs> pain in the ass for, for the guys, the crew guys who had to make it happen. But it, it was that, that's when I think of like the beginnings of trap rock, that's, that's something I can point to directly and say, you know what, that, that spirit is kind of what a lot of trap rock as we know it t- today is. Yeah, that's, I mean, I had never heard about that until you mentioned it a while ago. Like I said, I I, uh, I always like to tattle on myself. I screwed up and forgot to hit record yeah. earlier. So this is the second time we're talking about <laughs> this. But, uh, I mean, that's just wild to me. And it's crazy that I never heard it. Yeah. Uh, so. It, it is really weird. And it's like sometimes I, I don't really believe that it happened. But I promise on my life, ask any of those guys, my dad or Jim or Mike or Robert or Tina or Nadira or Johnny or even Roger came out and did it, you know. Roger, who's notoriously wow. the curmudgeon in the band who doesn't like to do these things, he came out and did it. It was literally <laughs> a whole band in the parking lot playing it. And I know it happened because I can't tell you how many people have come up to me over the years at shows and whatnot and showed me pictures of myself as a little kid 
um, you know, sitting on one of these golf carts, like with <laughs> feather boa on and stuff, trying to get in the spirit of it. So I, I, I do believe it, it, it actually happened. And it's, it's a cool part of that history to me that, that not everyone knows about. Yeah. Um, when I first got, so I, I've been a Buffett fan probably since the 96, 97, but in 2004, I, well, yeah, it was 2004. Uh, I went from just being a fan and was not a member of a Paradise club to being president of a Paradise club in like a week. So there was a lot wow. of these things yeah. that, that were connected to the music, but not that I didn't know about. And one of the things that struck mm-hmm. me really quickly is I met these older people. I mean, I was 23 at the time as I met these yeah, people in their forties yeah. and fifties who were huge Buffett fans was the ones who were like fanatical about Peter Mayer, who were fanatical about Nadir mm-hmm. or fanatical about club Trini. And mm-hmm. I have to wonder now if those pre-show shows weren't where those obsessions for these people came from. Absolutely. I think that was, it, it was really a, I think the band saw it as like a win-win situation for them. They got to show off a side of what they did that a lot of parrot heads might not have known about beforehand. And, you know, I think what they, pro- the way they presented it to Jimmy was probably, Hey, we can get, we can be your warm up act without hiring an opening act, you know, get people fired up. Not, not as if, you know, those folks needed any excuse to get psyched up and have plenty of drinks before Jimmy comes on. But I, it was a really cool thing they did. And I, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of people got introduced to the individual music of the, the Coral Reefers through Club Trini and that whole experience, even though it may have only lasted for a few years, because we were saying earlier, I, I don't remember Mac being a part of them. So it must have been before he rejoined the Coral Reefers full time in the mid nineties. So I, I, I bet someone listening to this podcast, though, who's more of a parrothead historian, I bet they can target <laughs> it and, and get us those exact dates. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to explore this as, as the Trap Rock 101 podcast moves forward because it sounds – I just can't believe I didn't know about it. So it's a, Yeah, well, it was one of those cool things lost to history. <laughs> yeah, so um, one of the things I found really interesting – you know, over all my time in the community, but especially now that I've kind of started thinking about this podcast is most people, both fans and artists can kind of point to a point in time, oftentimes a a specific weekend or show and go, okay, this is when it became like my thing, you know, a major part of my life. They made a choice at some point. You, in some ways Mm -hmm. that choice was made for you. Um, You were born into uh, the music business specifically born into the Coral Reefer band. So, uh, yeah. you know, talk about that. The fact that, that, I mean, I guess at some point you did have a choice. Um, you, you have a sister who, uh, you know, to the best of my knowledge, is not super involved in the music industry or paired in mm-hmm. rock world, so, right. yeah. but mm-hmm. you were both born into it. So. Yeah. It, it, once I decided to play music for a living, I think I was fortunate in that, like many uh, children or relatives of established musicians, uh, there was naturally a, a, a bit of an interest in what I was doing, which I'm really grateful for. Um, talking about the Club Trini thing, for instance, literally a lot of these people had seen me at Buffett shows since I was three, four years old. So, and, and I think my family was a little unique in that sense too, because not every 
child of the coral reefers was out that much on the road. And I'm sure <laughs> it drove some people on the tour crazy at times they had these little kids running around, but I literally, you know, I was pretty, pretty much out there. I, I want to say we went out to see Buffett shows three to six times a year. So we, we were seeing quite a few shows. So in, in other words, people had kind of seen me and if they followed my dad, they knew he had a son and they, you know, my dad is, he loves to talk about his kids on stage much more than I'd like him to, but he's, he's a proud dad and he, <laughs> I'm sure he mentioned us quite a bit. So once I got into it, it was, uh, you know, I think there was naturally a little bit of curiosity and I was so young at that point. I don't know. I hope people liked it. I don't always like what I was doing back then <laughs> for the songs I was writing and the way I was singing things, but I am fortunate that, I think there's a huge sense of loyalty um, in the Parrothead trap rock world and just a, a genuine sense of like joy and um, desire to discover new music. So I think I was given a, a really big chance. You know, people gave me a lot of opportunities to grow and learn and, and figure out what I wanted to do musically. I think beyond that, the biggest moment for me where it felt like, okay, this drop rock thing is a part of what I'm going to do professionally, like moving forward, this is going to be a big part of my musical identity was when I went out on the road with Jimmy in, in 2014, when he asked me to come out and, and kind of be a featured artist during that tour and play a song or two of my own. I remember thinking, okay, this, you know, I'm going to get in front of a lot of people this summer and, almost all of them are going to be Jimmy's fans, you know, and those who didn't know me already now is kind of their chance to, to see what I do. And um, it, it was wonderful. I mean, it's, it's been incredible to see the the fan support from that point on. I mean, it's people have really enjoyed what I do, even though it's, it doesn't always fit in with the, with the traditional trap rock thing. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that more, but because uh, I have a lot of thoughts on on that connection um, and how Trap Rock's growing and how it will grow in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously you had a natural end with your dad and your connection to the Coral Reefer Band. But I think I think if you had been in you know early mid twenties writing super Trap Rocky Corona beer palm tree songs, I don't know that you would have been accepted yeah. actually as much yeah. as you were for doing your own thing and. And doing your own vibe, uh, I think it would have actually hurt you if you had tried to be super parrotheadish mm-hmm. in your original music right off the bat. So, well, that's a yeah, no, that's actually a really interesting point that I hadn't thought about. That's I'd never really looked at it that way, and it's a good point because I think people really can see through BS pretty easily, and if you can't sing something authentically as an artist, I don't think people are going to enjoy it. You know, it's going to come off like a a piece of performance art or like you're wearing a costume. And I think at that point, my, I wasn't in that place with the music I was writing. I just, you know, I've always admired Jimmy's music and I've loved songs of his and, you know, I just think he's fantastic. But at that point in my life, I didn't want to be Jimmy Buffett, even though he'd given me this opportunity I didn't want to play 
Jimmy Buffett music. I looked up to different artists. I saw myself as more like a classic rock star sort of person. Um, and it's been interesting as I've gotten older and been in the scene more and more, I think I've really come around to a place where, um, I don't know if it's that the genre has evolved or I've evolved, but I, I feel much more comfortable in these shoes now than I used to. And I, and I feel like now I can play stuff uh, that's more in the, you know, traditional trap rock vein and have it feel more authentic to me. That makes sense. And, and, you know, we, you talked earlier about, uh, the fact that, especially as a body of work, you are not a trap rock artist. By if you're going to find the genre, no. And I always like to to right. tell people that the genre and the community are not the exact same thing. Um, there, there's lots yeah, of people. That's, that's exactly right. Yourself, Eric Erdman, you know, uh, Drop Dead Dangerous, JD Edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That you're not making trap rock music. You're not. You may have a song or here and there that falls into no. it, but the body of work's not trap rock. But you're still part of this community that. Uh, that loves the the beach focused music, but also has accepted all these other artists that that to an outsider probably makes no sense for y'all to be involved and accepted yeah. and loved the way you are. Well, it's really it's hard to explain. It, it's it, quite honestly, it's very confusing. I, I don't even know that I can explain it to myself on most days how that complicated relationship works, but you're absolutely right. There's some really amazing artists in this community right now. People like Eric and uh, triple D who are just, they're fantastic, but you're right. Like traditionally they don't totally line up with the beach, you know, uh, tropical lifestyle songs that Jimmy definitely like pioneered a, not a formula, but he pioneered a very specific kind of performance in songwriting. And what I do, what those other artists we, we talked about do, d- doesn't always line up perfectly. But I was thinking about this a bit earlier today in preparation. And what kept coming up to me was like the whole trap rock community and the Parrothead fan base feels in a lot of ways like the last bastion or maybe the the best new frontier of independent music. And I think that's what has drawn so many artists to this world. I think in this community, you can find perhaps the, the best of what a true independent music community can do together. Um, If, if you're, you're, if you love that tradition of the singer songwriter, you know, and we can call these, there's so many names for so many different genres right now, Americano, you know, folk, whatever you want to call it. But I think the unifying thread is that there is a tradition of storytelling and honest um, songwriting and singing that is carried on really faithfully in the trap rock world. And I think that the relationship between artist and fan is, is really something to be admired. And I think to me, those are the hallmarks of what trap rock is. And of course, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to belittle anyone who, who plays honest, good 
coastal tropical music because I'm not trying to say that at all and, and say trap rock's not about that because I know that a big part of it is about that. But to me, when I look at why this genre seems to pull in or this community seems to pull in so many people who don't necessarily do those specific things in their music, I think it has to do with that the fact that this is like one of the last great bastions of honest songwriting and an honest connection between performer and fan. That's a, a very, it's a pretty deep take, man. But, uh, but I think it's true that it is, uh, it is, it's a, it's a very unique community and, uh, you know, as people find it and they stumble upon it, they want in and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I, I've never thought about this cause I, I never knew the story, but I wonder if some of it does not go back to these parking lot parties that, that the mm-hmm. Coral Reefer band played, uh, because your dad, I mean, he, you know, he's written some songs and performed some songs now, but like the core of what your dad is, he's not a trap rock artist. Uh, you know, no, Club, Club Trinity for all the steel drum and everything, they're really more of a jazz jam band kind of thing than yeah, yeah, uh, Nadira R and B influenced. You know, totally. So, yeah, and, and so I think is that, the dirty is that secret how, of what yeah. Jimmy Buffett is is that. Yeah, well, I think, you know, maybe if you look a little closer, the dirty secret of Jimmy Buffett is that he hasn't always been a trap rock artist. If you look at his career, that man has gone like five or six different directions, starting out in Nashville as a country artist, right? Then he's kind of developed, you know, chasing the Gordon Lightfoot thing, right? Now, obviously, he lived in tropical places and loved Key West in New Orleans. So he started writing about the beach. And he started writing about living in the islands and, and a lot of those, those topics had become, they were a big part of what made him so popular. But man, in the eighties, he went through his like eighties pop synth phase on yeah. off to see the lizard. Like yeah. so many artists were doing at the time. He, he's gone through more jammy phases. He's gotten into reggae stuff. I mean, I think part of the magic of a Jimmy Buffett show, if you go see one today and hopefully we'll get to see some live you know, in the, in the coming months and year. Yeah. But I think what you're going to see is a mix of like 12 different genres and every song is a little different and they, he really likes to, to explore what he can be. So to me, that it makes a whole lot of sense that, that this community that sprung up around that music would be so diverse. Yeah, you're right. Because uh, Buffett, yeah, he's, he's been at least a half dozen different artists. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and his band, like I said, it's just it's so far and and the band's been together. I mean, with the exception yeah. of a few horn players coming and going, and the passing of Ralph McDonald. Mm-hmm. As long as I mean, I've been following Jimmy Buffett's music for pushing twenty five years, and the band has pretty much been the band uh, for as long as I've been. I, I started following him right as Fingers was leaving the band, and I guess that was probably yeah. really the last yeah. major change in the sound. Well, Fingers, yeah, that's that's another great great to bring up fingers is it comes from a blues background so jimmy's always been an amalgamation of a lot of different things and i think that's partly why he's people find him so magical and his music so intriguing because he's he's never been very easy to pin down you know in a way and not that other artists aren't like that too but you know even someone like kenny chesney who's really good at what he does he's always either kind of been straight ahead country or country with beach elements thrown in. But Jimmy's really kind of 
woven around all these different genres and ended up at a place where all those things get thrown in the pot. Yeah, and Chesney got big doing straight ahead country and he did, then yeah. added the beach. Yeah. Jimmy, it might be fair to say that Jimmy was pretty much a failed country artist, yeah. commercially at least, and then did yeah. put all these other things together, yeah. you know. So, yeah, and to license to chill when he could finally have the last laugh at Nashville and, and he right. came back around and had his number one country record. <laughs> a couple of them now, really, if you count the, the stuff. Yeah, I kind of wrote around. this new yeah. one. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one more thought maybe about why uh, sure. why people like yourself or Eric Urban, uh, you know, Mike Nash, all those guys uh, fit in. When you have a two, three-day event, no matter how much you love a certain kind of music, I love Bruce Springsteen. I can't listen to nothing but, but – Bruce Springsteen or Bruce Springsteen inspired music for three days in a row. You'll go crazy. So you've got to have some curveballs and oddballs in a festival lineup to, it's so to keep true. things fresh yeah. and interesting, yeah. you know? And even John Patty, yeah. like people associate the still drum and drop rock so much, but like JP's solo, like, you know, his, his oh, true man. project when he fronts yeah. it, it's, it's, it's club Trinity, maybe even more wild, you know, wider base than club Trinity as yeah. far as what he's drawing on. So, yeah, man, and he is such a talented dude. I, I think, I hope that, you know, if anyone's on the outside and doesn't know that much about Trap Rock, I, I hope that one of the first things they learn is how much talent there is in the genre. Someone like John Patty is multi-instrumentalist, can play anything on first listen, trained in music theory. I mean, there's a lot of serious talent in this genre, and um, it's it's no surprise to me that that a lot of really great folks have found success with this kind of audience, because I think the trap rock audience is, a, is discerning, you know, and they, they can see quality when they hear it. Definitely. So uh, I'm going to share an opinion of mine and see what you have to, to say about sure. it. Um, to me, there is a difference between a Jimmy Buffett fan Mm-hmm. and a parrot head and then there's a difference between a parrot head and a trap rock fan there's all i mean there's obviously overlaps but to me they are three very mm-hmm. distinct groups of people with different characteristics would you agree with that having been around your whole life around this yeah i, I would agree with it and it's easy to kind of lump everyone together just for convenience sake but i i agree i agree and especially as the trap rock genre has grown so much and these uh, fantastic festivals and events have, have gained in popularity. I think there's a whole bunch of people who have been turned on to the music uh, via word of mouth, or maybe they saw a poster hanging up in their town and said, hey, I'm going to check this out. They, they might not have any notion of the connection with Jimmy Buffett. They, they might just show up and say, Hey, I love this artist. This is great. Um, now, of, co- of course, there is a lot of overlap uh, necessarily, and I don't think it's a bad thing, but um, I think it'll be interesting to see the next five years and how these relationships continue to change. And, uh, you know, the genre is growing. It's, it's, it really feels like it's growing both in the number of fans and in the, the number of artists. So I think we're going to see some changes in terms of like little pockets, of, you know, to any genre, this will inevitably happen. You'll you'll break off into little subgenres and pockets of 
certain fandom. You know, there might be people who identify as a trap rock fan who, who aren't really into the Jimmy Buffett stuff. They, they lean more towards the Southern rock side of trap rock. Oh, I, I could probably name a half um, dozen off the top of my yeah, head. It, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just, with all the, the potential for change with that, my only hope is that people just stay open-minded and inclusive in their thinking, because I think, again, going back to one of my earlier points, I think that's what has made this genre so special. And again, I, I, I should differentiate the, between the genre and the community, but the community by and large so special is that there's been uh, so, so much open-mindedness in terms of being willing to check out new artists and, and see what they're, what these different folks are offering, you know, even though it might not line up with every other artist in trap rock. So uh, what, what point age wise did you realize that Buffett's fan base was pretty different than most major artists fan base? I think I always knew that Jimmy's fan base was, was especially passionate, but I, you know, growing up, I, I couldn't say because I, we went to other concerts and I had other bands that I really loved and those fan bases are passionate too. I think we're, I've seen the most differentiation. It's actually been as I've gotten older and as I've seen this whole like trap rock movement, um, community along with the lifestyle thing grow. I think that's when I've started to see how different Jimmy's fan base is. Um, and, and maybe it's just because a lot of other artists with equally rabid fan bases haven't tried to do some of the things Jimmy's tried to do. Maybe, maybe it would work for them too. Like Springsteen, we, we share that in common. We both love Bruce. I don't know if, if, if Bruce <laughs> opened up a line of hotels with uh would East street fans flock to them and live? I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of Bruce fans would say, yeah, I live the lifestyle Bruce Springsteen that like his lyrics are like gospel to me, but Jimmy has definitely tapped into a unique thing where going to Margaritaville is truly a lifestyle. It is truly a lifestyle. This whole notion of going to Margaritaville in your mind and, and embracing the the music and the food and the drink that come along with it. <laughs> well, think about this. Uh, as much as we love Bruce Springsteen, there's never been a Bruce Springsteen mm-hmm. fan that said, Hey, let's all get together in Asbury park. Little Steven's going to headline. And earlier in the day, we're going to have like <laughs> Jay Clemens and, you know, and Southside right. Johnny and people playing down yeah. there. Like that's never happened, you know? So <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, and I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of the, his fans have become supporters of those guys. Like I know Nils Lofgren is, has probably gained a huge audience because of that association. For instance, I'm sure he gets better attendance at his shows, but you're right. You don't see a full fledged movement around this figure. Yeah. Um, And as you know, like I was saying on on the last question, I think the next five years are going to be really fascinating as, is the genre grows and what is its relationship with Jimmy going to be moving forward? Um, you know, he's always going to kind of be the, the original dude, but I see the genre really growing in a lot of directions and I'll be curious to see how that relationship changes. 
There you go. So uh, when was the first time that you really played like a public show out in the world? Okay, so probably, you know, like I was saying, my dad was always the classic proud dad, you know, and, and I was a very shy kid, so it drove me crazy most of the time because I was so embarrassed <laughs> to get up there and try to play anything next to him because he was just so darn good. But he would, you know, force me to get up and play some strum along on acoustic guitar early on, probably from the first time I did it, maybe eight or nine years old. He'd get me up and I'd play my little part that I'd kind of learned so, <laughs> so I could feel like I was part of the band, which was really sweet of him in hindsight, you know, getting that early experience, feeling what it feels like to be up and part of the band and playing for folks. Um, then when I was in high school, I started playing on my own and doing little solo like coffee shop gigs. I, you know, was always drawn to the the singer songwriter stuff of like James Taylor and Paul Simon. And so I would get up and do my little covers and started writing songs and playing some of those early ones for my like high school friends, try to impress girls that I liked and invite them to the shows and, and so forth. So I, you know, I've been, I've been playing it guitar for a long time. Probably I would say my first solo show was like 13 or 14. Wow. And you've lived in Nashville vast majority of your life, right? Yeah. At this point I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, but at this point I consider myself pretty much a Nashvilleian because I've been here since I was nine years old. So it's, I've gotten to see the city grow as well which has been really cool. A lot of, I've gotten really lucky, you know, a lot of life is just comes down to luck and I've gotten lucky in a lot of key ways with my dad having the fan base he has and then growing up in Nashville. When we moved here, you know, it was just really a country town and I didn't imagine that it could ever help me do what I wanted to do because I never saw myself as a country artist. Now, as, as I've gotten older, that whole notion of what it means to be a Nashville artist has changed a lot. And another guy I know we both love, Jason Isbell, he's been a big part of that, you know, changing what it means to be country. What does it mean to to, uh, pay homage to those Nashville artists, but still blaze your own trail and not necessarily follow that formula, you know, set down by guys like Merle and Waylon and, and Johnny Cash. Yeah, there's a lot more indie rock in Nashville than people realize. I there think. is. Yeah, there is. And and people are, again, like the genre thing, it gets so sticky because, you know, any more what indie rock in Nashville might mean a whole different thing than what indie rock in Seattle means. You know, indie rock in Seattle is going to be, where, what are the roots there? What's the, the lineage? Grunge, you know, it's going to come from that like classic Seattle sound. Nashville indie rock might have a whole lot more country and Americana influences in it. So that, that's been kind of cool to see the city develop its own, uh, its own identity in, in genres outside of, outside of country that, that really feel uniquely Nashville. And you, uh, you went to Boston college, correct? For college, Boston university, Boston the, university. The, 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 the fierce rival of BC. So we, uh, I, it was a really fun four years for me. I love Boston as a city and as a college town. It was just amazing, like seeing so many kids your age out on the city streets and 
um, I got to, you know, try some different things out for size and see what I might be good at and what I might want to do with my life. And, uh, you know, the, as many of your listeners might know if they're familiar with my story at all, I was a history major. I think Jimmy said that every night I was on the road with them. Uh, and I do not use that history degree today, except for recreational purposes. And, uh, but I, I don't regret a, a day that I spent up there because it, it was, first of all, a lot of fun. And it, it taught me a whole lot about life and relationships and what I didn't want to do. Gotcha. And, go, you know, going back to the, the year you were on tour with Buffett, um, it's really interesting what Buffett does. Like he usually does not have a opener in the traditional sense. Mm, he tends to have yeah. uh, what he calls features, featured artists. You were one. Um, Elo was one. Matt, I don't know if, if Hawkins mm-hmm. was ever really truly one, but you know he's he's he, picked he, up. He's out for some shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's it's a weird yeah. thing. Like they don't you don't necessarily play like your set. You know, your thirty or forty five minutes, whatever, and then like Buffett kind of almost just works you into the show. I think Caroline Jones was the last person to to kind of fill that role. Uh, talk about like what was your day like as yeah. a featured artist? You you showed up, sound checked. Uh, it's not what people typically think of as a opener uh, opening act. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, like I was again, like so fortunate to be featured in that role and to be included as much as I was. I'm sure it didn't hurt that, you know, my dad is part of the band. I mean, I, so I had relationships with all those guys prior to me going out on the road with them, but it was amazing. Like, I really felt folded into that group and it's a tight knit group. Like you were saying, they've all been there for years and years and they, they're all friends with each other. I mean, I can't, I can't say that I've ever witnessed any sort of fight between those guys or any of that, like classic uh, band drama that you hear about, especially in bands that have been around for that long. Yeah. They, they all genuinely love, each other and here I am as a, a young kid in his early 20s coming in and they were incredible and, and Jimmy's included in that I think they they had fun with you know like a younger dude that could kind of mess around with a little bit and live vicariously <laughs> through in some senses and uh, it, it was great like a typical day we would you know get to the venue and go to our dressing rooms always I mean like it was my first experience getting pampered that much, you know, because I'd been gigging a bit at that point and it certainly didn't have that kind of travel and the, that kind of spread laid out for you when you got to the gig <laughs> and, you know, not having to set up your own sound gear. That was really nice. Uh, having a guitar tech. Um, I mean, that's living the dream right there. Someone who tunes your guitars for you. I, <laughs> I notoriously always seem to have tuning problems on my so to have someone who brought me a guitar perfectly in tune was like cloud nine. Um, it was awesome. You know, I'll never forget. They said, Oh, you're going to need your in-ear monitors. So they sent an audiologist to my house in Nashville, poured phone monitors from that tour. And it, what can I say? It was just an amazing experience. And, you know, most of the time it, it didn't feel totally real because I was so young and inexperienced at that point, I think it was a lot of it felt feels a little surreal looking back on it, but it was, it was awesome. I mean, 
and I know, uh, I'm sure if you talk to people like Elo and Caroline um, and Matt, you know, Matt Hoggett came out certainly for a few shows. He was on, uh, I think like one or two that I was on. And uh, I'm sure they would all say similar things. Like it's just a really great organization and they do a good job of, of bringing people in and making them feel welcomed. And, and Jimmy too always carves out space uh, to feature those folks when he, when he doesn't have to, like he didn't have to play sh- shakers and bongos on my tune. Like he didn't. Yeah. That to me, to, that was uh, the craziest part of it was yeah. when, when he didn't just leave the stage and go to the bathroom and get a drink. He was, he stayed on stage yeah. and played with you. Or, or, you know, what a lot of artists would probably do in Jimmy's position is, is make it about them in a sense and not in a selfish way, but just like, these are my fans and they want to see me be a part of everything that happens. So what Jimmy could have said is I'm taking a verse or we'll turn this into a medley and we'll go into one of my songs after, you know, there were a lot of ways he could handle that. And it's just, it's a true, a real tribute to him that he, he was so uh, generous about that whole situation and just really encouraging. Yeah. And you, I mean, you came out in the middle of the show and did, did you do one or two songs? Well, I did one song by my, well, with, I did one song heading up the Coral Reefer band at night. And then I would come out for a few others and, and play lead guitar and trade off with my dad on, on solo. So I was probably out for about six, six songs a night. Uh, oh, but one, one song that I had written. Yeah, I I don't think I ever saw you. Uh, I went three or four years there where my kids were real little without ever going to a show. Mm. That was when you were out. So I I don't I never got to see that. I wish I had now, but uh, you know, heard all about it and I've seen the videos. So, mm-hmm. uh, you so you got a chance a few years later, uh, to to play to fill in for Mac McAnally at the Paris gig. Yeah, and uh, that I mean that's pretty dang cool and, and and you know you you told me about it uh that it was going to happen i saw you somewhere and you told me about it and i was like well that's really cool mm. and then i saw a video from paris you like you were totally mm. you weren't just like filling the spot on stage you were singing max parts on you know like five o'clock somewhere you were singing max <laughs> like i was like oh wow like he's not just on yeah. stage filling that spot he's actually really doing max full-blown job and that was one of the most wonderful and stressful experiences of my life. It was talk about a whirlwind, that whole thing. I think I got the, I got the heads up about a month before and that Mac was not going to be able to go to Europe. And that it was, it was Kino who's Jimmy, who kind of runs the European shows for Jimmy. He called and said, Brendan, you know, would you be willing to do this? I, I know you usually go to Europe you'll be there this seems to make sense. He'd been out with us before, you know, the drill, you know, the music. I, and I was like, of course, like, this is incredible. It's going to be amazing. Because at that point I had not necessarily thought that like that paid or that, that chapter had closed with Jimmy, but I kind of figured I, I did my year out with them and that's that. And, you know, I'll continue to have a great relationship with Jimmy and, be associated with that. But I didn't think necessarily that I'd be doing that much more playing with him in the band. So to get that, I was, I was kind of surprised and of course just thrilled. And uh, it was crazy though, because we were out on tour with Scott Kirby doing our mayor Kirby mayor tour. So we're playing shows almost every night on that. And meanwhile, with every other free hour I got sent like, because Jimmy was doing that year, I think four or five nights in Paris. So I got, 
like 90 songs, some of which I'd never even heard of before. <laughs> not, not even, not been that familiar with. I, I didn't even know that these were Jimmy Buffett songs. Like, wow. Jimmy, you know, and again, to his credit, he likes to keep it interesting. I know, speaking of Springsteen, I know he's like this too. It's like the stump the band thing. Yeah. You know, when you have uh, the same audience going to be there for four nights, he wants to get throw a few extra special treats to the hardcore fans who want to hear certain things. So there were all these songs and I was just busting my butt trying to learn all of them in time. And then, of course, we get there and do the shows. And I, I swear we didn't do half of them. You know, <laughs> it came down to show night and Jimmy was like, you know what, let's just... Uh, you know, let's just keep Southern Cross in there instead of doing this other song that I, you know, was one of the more obscure ones. But it was amazing. And I got to also give a, a big shout out to Mac McNally because that man, I'm, sh- you know, who wants to be the one who can't go on this trip, you know, because he was dealing with some some health issues at the time. And his doctor told him that it just wasn't a great idea for him to go. And man, Mac had me over to his house and literally showed me licks and kind of gave me the like crash course tutorial in being Mac McAnally for an afternoon. <laughs> and I will always be appreciative of that because he's, he really saved me on a lot of those songs saying, here's what you got to worry about. Okay. This don't worry so much. This is where you need to be strong in this backup part. So Thank you, Mac. He, he truly is one of the best people I know. So gracious, even in a situation like that, helping the guy who's going to fill in for him. So speaking of Mac, um, this, this is one of my favorite Brendan Mayer stories, my personal Brendan Mayer story. Uh, okay. <laughs> you were here in Texas a couple of years ago playing our Pirates and Poets show at T-Bone Toms, and, and you, you don't like mention your dad by name usually when you're playing you're you'll my, you know you, i grew up in the music business my dad says and and somewhere towards the end of this show um you said and i wrote this song with my friend mac McAnally. and the the jerry diaz was hosting and the third guy was don vickers uh who's played for us a lot now but it was his first time to, to meet any of us play yeah, yeah. coach show meet jerry yeah. any of this sure. and uh and he's Great like guy. I, I was sitting there watching him eye you. Every, you know, you, you'd say this, and he'd eye you like, "Well, who the hell are you?" Like, and finally, you got ready. To, you said, "And I wrote this song, with my friend Mac McAnally," and you didn't stop long enough to give him a chance to interrupt you. But like, he kind of just like looked over <laughs> at me and Danielle and said, "Who the fuck is this guy?" Because <laughs> uh, he was such as like Mac McAnally. What like? <laughs> Because he's a country oh, guy, man. so I'm sure oh, Matt I, I is probably like on his, you know, bucket list. So, oh man, that's amazing. Yeah, no, I I never noticed that. This is the first time I'm hearing that story. Yeah, that's, that's hilarious. That's awesome. It is. It is amazing because I always knew. I always, of course, knew how great Mac was, but I always knew him as basically my dad's coworker. Um, you know, as a when I was younger, and then as I got older, I would just mention his name and hear the reverence folks had for him, especially in the music industry. He's just the musician's musician. He's, and he's, he's kind to everyone, which goes a long way too. He's just really a team player. So man, cheers to Mac. He, he's one of a kind. And I know he's doing a live stream uh, coming up that I'm excited to watch. First one I've seen him do. Oh, no, I'll have to check shows. that out. So yeah. Yeah. With Eric Darkin. 
I kind of got live streamed out for a while. Um, probably didn't went two or three weeks without watching one. I mean, even from people that I yeah. know and love, but I'm kind of starting to get back into them now. So I will have to track that one down. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about here, here about uh, the whole long story short album, the, the album that you did with your dad. Sure. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, so 2017, uh, we put that one out. I, we started about a year before um, starting to write songs and just talk through that. Basically what happened was at this point, I was a couple years removed from being out with the reefers and I'd been working on my own music and my dad came up to me and he said, you know, we've been playing these duo shows together because we'd started doing a lot of gigs, just the two of us kind of two acoustic guitars, keeping it simple um, and really enjoying the simplicity of that. I mean, we love playing with a full band, of course, and that's always, you're never going to be able to, match that huge sound that you can get with four or five piece full full band but we came to really enjoy these duo shows where we got to really focus on things like harmonies and um you know we we started covering a few great duo songs right like hey let's lean into this vibe so we started playing some simon and garfunkel stuff or um you know everly brothers or just stuff that we felt like could be unique and show off what it is we could do um so he came up to me, credit to him, and said, hey, I don't want to steal you away from anything that you're working on, but got this idea. This has been a lot of fun. Let's see if we can put this down to tape, you know, and memorialize this this vibe. So we went into it really thinking that it was going to be stripped down like, like, you know, our Nebraska album, you know, like – this like our like equated to Springsteen like our Nebraska just lo-fi acoustic guitars not take too much time on it let's right. just write some simple songs and and see what happens and, and put it out in the world and of course we you know we mayor boys cannot bear to do anything simple so <laughs> we started writing songs and just throwing crap at the wall and seeing what stuck so we invited a lot of our musician friends and family to contribute. And we ended up with kind of a, a pretty traditional record that just happened to have our two names on it. But I, I think it's some of the best songwriting I've been a part of. Um, and that song, the, those songs really have become staples of my live set and, and my dad's too. A lot of those we play every night now and, we included a couple covers, stuff like Copper Line by James Taylor and uh, The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. So that's one I'm really proud of, and I can't believe that it's already three. My new record for five years after they've put it And yeah, let's just go right into this new project that you've teased yeah. a little bit, released a single from, and hopefully soon we'll hear more of it. Yeah, yeah, I certainly hope so. It's... Uh, you know, at this point, I kind of just have to joke about it because it's taken so long for me to to get this thing out. Um, it feels like it's been, in some ways, like a six-year process coming out of, because a lot of these songs, truly, I started writing right after that, that summer with Jimmy. And then we did a long story short record. Um, and since then, I've really been trying to to get these right. 
And I hope when I finally get it out that it's it's good enough to justify that wait because it's been a long time. But I'm, I'm really excited about the songs and I'm, I'm working with uh, some great musicians, great guy out of St. Louis who's mixing and kind of co-producing with me in Miles Vandiver. So we're having fun with it and uh, I'm excited for, for you all to hear these songs. I, I'm proud of them. It's just now I got to get myself kicked into gear and maybe stop being so much of a perfectionist about some of it and just letting them live on their own now, you know, birth them into the world and <laughs> let them stand on their own. I know at one point you were talking about doing, uh, doing two or three EPs. Is that still on the table yeah, or it, it, it is. And, and honestly, it kind of feels like, you know, an invention that comes out of necessity at this point because I, it's been so long. I just want to get some stuff out, and this gives me a way to kind of present the album in three parts, and that way I can get music out and then focus on the next five songs, get that out. And then when, once it's all done, you know, and I'm sure you've talked about this with other artists, but we're at such a strange uh, point in the business side of music right now. Like, how do you release music? Uh, because another in, unique thing about uh, the trap rock community is that there's a lot of demand for CDs still. So yes. doing something like an EP does, it's a little trickier um, because it's like, okay, do you print up physical copies of a five song EP? And if you do, what's the price point on that where it's fair to everyone, but it, it still is worth it for you to bother selling it. Um, so that's one of the consider considerations in all this too. But I figured at the end of it, I could combine the three into like a 15 song single CD. Yeah, it's a, I, I would be willing to bet that our community probably sells more CDs per capita, physical CDs per capita than any other yeah. music scene. There are plenty of places probably that sell more in just sheer bulk. But I mean, per fan, I bet our fans buy more physical copies oh. than anybody. So Yeah. And I, and I love it. I love the spirit of it because, um, you know, I, I'm sure you're the same way. I grew up listening to albums, you know, and single culture is, is really a newer thing where it's like you just choose a song or two from an artist and those are the songs, you know. I love listening to a full album as a complete piece of work because as an artist, I know the, the thought that goes into it in terms of like little things like the order of the songs, you know most musicians actually put a lot of time into that. Like, how do I want to present this thing? The artwork I know is a common uh, thing that people bring up. Like, well, if there's no CD, how do I see the artwork? How do I read lyrics? How do I see the, the credits who played on what song? So I think those are all really legitimate uh, questions. And I don't think as an industry, we've really figured out how to do that. Um, without CDs yet in an effective way. I know there's an answer, you know, I know we're going to come to a place uh, where we can marry newer technology uh, with a lot of those things that CD offers, but I don't know that we're there yet. I know vinyl's popular. I like vinyl too, um, but it's that, so it is also life. unwieldy and it's hard to, it's expensive to make and it's hard to transport too. Um, um, you know, you can't leave them in a hot van like you can with CDs. Those things are going to warp. They're hard, pain in the butt to carry around. So I'm, I'm curious to see what innovations are going to happen. Um, but right now, CDs still sell, even though I, I know probably about 20% of fans now come up to me and say, I don't even have a CD player in my car, you know. 
So it's interesting times, uncharted territory in a lot of ways. Right. And you know, you were talking about like the, <clears throat> the ordering of songs, that kind of stuff. CDs, it doesn't, you know, yeah. it's just like 10 songs in a row, 12, 15, however. But back in the vinyl days, you know, when vinyl was the primary, like artists had to think about, it was almost like two albums in one because it, mm-hmm. you had to get up and go flip a thing over, like, you know, going back to Springsteen. Right, right. You know, he would talk about the, the four cornerstones of the album, and the cornerstones were the first and last mm. song on each side. So, you know. And, uh, right, right. There's a lot more art, you know, a lot, a lot of thought uh, and effort put into all of that as opposed to just this is the single, put it up on Spotify. So it, it is, and I think, um, I think there's something too with the album. I think p- people want to feel like what they've paid for has value. Um, someone who works in the music industry told me that one time. He said. There's no, you know, because a lot of musicians have pulled out their hair about the future of, of music and how do we sell our product and make a living when it seems like demand is going down, right? It's, it's never going to be like it was in the 90s where people were selling just unbelievable numbers of, of CDs and records. But he said people still want to spend money on, on music and live music. It's just they want to feel like what they purchased has value. So I do think that we need to do, and I've see, actually seen a lot of really, uh, really great folks in the trap rock scene do that effectively. Like I'm so impressed. Donnie Brewer is one that comes to mind. He is so good with merchandise and coming up with cool stuff that makes you want to buy it, you know? And even like the artwork for his albums is always really, really well done. That stuff makes a difference because it makes people feel like what they're buying has value. You know, it means something. Yeah. And I, I'm going to earn myself a couple of brownie points here and say that Michelle Brewer has just as much to do with that merchandise, probably more than Donnie. Does, yes. So. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. We got to, yeah, I know she's a big driving uh, force behind the whole operation. So I, I kind of almost think that like you. everybody should just hire Michelle to like, the the choosing the merchandise and designing it like Michelle yeah. should just do that for everybody and we'd all be better off that way. <laughs> and it's you're right, man. That's an art form in and of itself because it's hard. To, I know from experience, it's hard to identify what's going to be effective and desirable. Sometimes you might really think that I know exactly what people are going to buy, and you'd be totally wrong. And then the thing that you kind of just decided to print up as an afterthought ends up selling out at every show. So it's, it's hard to know, man, this, this whole uh, business is not a science in any way. No, it's, it's called art for a reason. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> so uh, of course the, the whole world is just on hold right now, but uh, what, what are you hopeful to be doing in the yeah. next six months to a year? <laughs> well, we're all trying to figure it out right now. You know, it, I think um, I've talked about this with a lot of my musician friends that there's a strange sense of comfort in knowing that everyone is going through this exact same problem as you right now. Yes. Makes you feel like you're not quite so alone in all of it. Um, so my, my hope is that uh, we get back to live music in, in some shape or form in the next six months to a year. I think there's really uh, creative ways to do it. I think house concerts are going to be huge out 
outdoor events are going to be huge um, as we all try to navigate this. Um, and I just hope that, you know, we continue getting creative. I've been really inspired by a lot of the the cool innovations I've seen over the past few months. Uh, it's just been amazing to see, first of all, to see how much better, like the live streams have gotten. Oh yeah. Like people, all these musicians who probably never once thought about any of this technology, myself included, all of a sudden you're backed into a corner and you're like, Oh boy. Okay. If I actually want to do this and have this look halfway decent and have people, people be able to hear what I'm doing, I've got to spend a day or two kind of getting a crash course on how live streaming works. And I've been so impressed to see the presentations. A lot of these people have come up with it's, it's awesome. And I just, uh, I hope that we keep, keep that same spirit of innovation moving forward. When we do get back to normal, uh, I, I hope we remember this and what we were capable of like this trap rock strong video. How cool was that, man? Like that oh, yeah. was, and again, Donnie Brewer, man, one of the, I think the biggest dynamos in this whole scene right now is just, he's, uh, he's responsible for a lot of that positive momentum. And I was just, I was so impressed and proud to be a part of that thing. So it, it's cool, man. It's exciting times amidst all the uncertainty. I think there's a lot of possibility and I, I hope that we all just stay patient and, and try to stay inspired. Definitely. It's, it is a big long waiting game. It's a, it's a matter of, you know, making smart calculated gambles. You know, like you said, I, yeah. I think house concerts are going to be crazy important. Um, in the next six months to, to two years. Um, but there's ways to do it and be smart. You know, um, obviously I don't know if anybody's going to be game for hosting an indoor house concert anytime soon, mm-hmm. but you know, people have backyards that can hold 60, 70 people. So yeah, let's cut that down to 30 yeah. to 40 people and, you know, have a house concert. Um, yes, it's a gamble, but at the same time, people have to get out and enjoy their lives and the artists need to get out and make some money. So, um, if you've thought about hosting a house concert, uh, now is the time to uh, to speak yes. up and and talk to the artists, talk to folks like Eric Babin or myself who who coordinate mm-hmm. these things sometimes. And uh, you know, uh, nobody, uh, and I'm sure you would agree with this, Brendan. Speaking to folks who who host house concerts or maybe are interested but maybe afraid to, um, nobody's going to expect you to mm-hmm. nail it the first time or even the fifth time. You know, uh, especially right now. Uh, you know, artists just yeah. want to get out and play. And if it's, there is no perfect situation right now. So uh, if you can host a house concert, yeah, every, do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, like coming back to just how, how much I'm inspired by seeing what people are capable of. Yeah, you'd be so amazed, like when presented with an opportunity, what people come up with in terms of like, Okay, so putting on your first house concert, that's hard to begin with. And you might be thinking, okay, in a pandemic, how am I going to rise to that occasion with that additional challenge on top of keeping everyone safe and and doing it the right way? But man, it's I'm just amazed at the ways people I've seen it started to see some videos of of people doing these things socially distanced and and just being creative, you know, where everyone just brings their own cooler. There's ways to do this. And the more we learn about this disease, it it feels to me like um, you know, certain things aren't as much of a risk as we at first thought they were. Like now it seems like maybe surfaces aren't as dangerous. So that's huge, you know. Right. Right there. 
you know, if, uh, if you try to ha- wear a mask when you're listening, you, you know, and just take it off to take a sip your drink or whatever. I think there's ways to, to do this really effectively. And man, if you put on a house concert for, for people who have never been, been to one before, you're going to be the hero of your community, man. People are so amazed at how cool these things are. Like beyond the trap rock world, house concerts are just blowing up, period. Like people right. are realizing what a special and unique way this is to experience live music. They are. Uh, it's uh, for, for people like me who are you know super music fans. I mean, hey, I love going to a bar and hearing a, a good cover mm-hmm. band, party band. But it's it's tough to go, you know, people like yourself, they're going to play vast majority original music. It's tough to go to a place... You know, yeah, you may have 30, mm-hmm. 40 people that show up to see you, but there's still another 100 that could care less. They want you to play Sweet Home Alabama. And a house concert mm-hmm. takes those those people out of it, you know. So I, yeah. I, I think they're good for yeah. for both the venues, you know, the public venues and the artists because the public venues don't have to book artists in that that can't they, – they can't do the stuff that the general mm-hmm. public wants to hear, you know. So I think there's a place for all of it. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, I want to uh, I want to wrap this up with a few rapid fire questions. So I'm going to keep you on your toes here. Sure, let's do it. Uh, favorite okay. beach? What's your favorite beach? Favorite beach? You know, I'm going to say the most recent one that really impressed me was San Juan, Puerto Rico. Man, I went there for the first time last year. I was blown away by how how beautiful that was. All right, your favorite trap rock song from an independent artist. So your Uncle Jimmy doesn't count. Okay, a favorite <laughs> trap rock song from an independent artist. Whoa, this is really tough. Okay, and I'm I'm super biased. Does Eric Erdman count? Anything Eric Erdman does? Yes, like, we I'm, use we use the community <laughs> definition here, not the not the genre. Okay, okay, so. and I and and everyone knows this about me, but I'm probably Eric Erdman's biggest fan. So no, you're not. You're his second biggest fan. so uh so what's the song though okay uh the song i'm really bad with the names uh oh god if i can't even name here's the problem because i don't want to just throw out a name and and just have it be the the name of the one that i remembered and not actually be the song that i like because he'll he'll, (laughs) He'll call me up and be like, "You actually like that's the song you." Like? <laughs> um, oh God! Why don't we come? Why don't we come back to that one? Because okay. I really like I do listen to all of them. I just <laughs> especially because I know I know a lot of them from playing with them. Yeah. It's like, oh man, that one is so is so great. Yeah. All right. Favorite Buffett song. Favorite Buff- Buffett song. Okay, uh, Ten Cup Chalice. Oh, that was quick. You were you were ready for that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of people that share that one. I think as their favorite. Yeah. Song, so. I know it's that is yeah. Louis backyard. Uh, favorite cocktail. Wait, say that again. Say that again. I said Louis. Oh, favorite cocktail. Yeah. Louis backyard. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, favorite cocktail would uh, well that changes, but I am going to say a classic margarita, but like very low sugar. Like I just want that thing, lime juice and really good tequila 
and maybe a little bit of Cointreau, but like I'm a purist man when it comes to margaritas. Keep it simple. I'm, I'm with you on that one. So uh, any living artist that you could write a song with, who would it be? Any living artist? Um, I'm going to say, hmm, this is tough because I, I know who like I just am obsessed with as an artist, but I don't know that I necessarily, I'm a, like a huge Radiohead fan. That when I talk about like what I wanted to be in my early twenties, I wanted to be Radiohead. Like I just love what they do and how adventurous they are. But I don't know if I necessarily want to write a song with Tom York because he seems like a very I, I don't think he would write well with me. I think he just has to come up with all that crazy paranoid stuff in his own head. So <laughs> I am going to say that I would write a song with Jason Isbell. I kind of saw that. I think we kind of, yeah, I mean, a a lot of people are going to say that, but I just think, I genuinely think we'd complement each other. Well, I think he would bring like a dirt and a grit to my songwriting. And I think I could, you know, introduce, I don't know. I think I could push him in, in a certain way. I don't know. Not that I, anywhere close to Jason. I, know, I, mean, I, I think I, I could bring something to the table. Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, I think it would make a good pairing because in some yeah. ways you're uh, musically you're alike and in some ways you're not. So, but I think you have yeah, to some common, yeah. there's got to be some common ground to start on. So. All right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. What's yeah. a good book you've read lately that you think other people should read? Okay. Good book that I've read. Well, I don't know if I, I, um, my girlfriend and I just did a really long road trip and we did an audio book. I really like the John Krakauer books. Um, he did like into thin air. I love like adventure stuff. So his story of climbing, uh, Mount Everest, I think is just a crazy story that I think is fascinating. Um, my favorite book of all time though, is, uh, the grapes of wrath by Steinbeck. I think it's just oh, wow. like one of the most beautifully written, uh, just like very, again, very earthy. And it, it feels like an Americana song to me in novel form written back in, you know, the, the forties or whenever he wrote that. But I, I just think it's in, incredible. Well, you know, that, uh, that book, I've never read the book or maybe I did read it in high school, but I don't remember anything about it. But like that book is what really inspired Springsteen to do the yeah. whole Tom Joe yeah. thing. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say like talking about, I know Springsteen loves that book and um, yeah, it's pretty powerful. And especially like, I'm sure every generation has felt this, but you know, there's a lot of chaos in the world right now. And it feels like there's a lot of unrest bubbling up from below the surface. And it's a pretty like, I think appropriate book for these times, just in terms of, you know, a lot of changes societally and culturally in the country. Definitely. And uh, I do want to point out that, uh, you and I are probably the only people that could get together to record a podcast about trap rock music and talk about Bruce Springsteen more than any other artist. T- yeah. I think we've talked about Springsteen like five times already. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe more than we've talked about Buffett, you know? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we're, so we're going to fix it here. Here's the, uh, here's the, the big okay. question. Last one. Okay. If you were going to uh, create yeah. a Mount Rushmore of independent trap rock artists who would be on it, Mm, okay, that's a that's a really good 
question. Okay, it's so right. Well, I think that you have to. Uh, this is tough. I think that you have to go with some of the people who really paved the way for this whole thing. So, you know, Jerry Diaz is, he's one of those dudes who like, if he didn't start playing trap rock, uh, when he did this, this genre wouldn't exist. And I, I know Jerry, we've done a number of songwriting events together through you. And I think he's great. So I'm going to put him on there. Are we now is this community or just strictly in the genre? So here's, here's, here's the, it's a two part question. The Mount Rushmore of artists and then at the end, we stuck on the fifth one who is not an artist. So, Okay, so this is people playing in the trap rock genre. Yes. Specifically. Yes. Okay. Uh, no, no, okay. yeah, the, the community. Yeah, I mean, like, if you want to put uh, Eric Erdman or, or uh, you know, yeah. Hugo, Hugo Duarte, some of those guys that might not, yeah, they're they're all game. So. Yeah, yeah, to- totally. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, because I, I do want to put Hugo on there as well because um, I just, it's interesting. I never was as familiar uh, with his music when he was living, but I met him a couple times when he came to see my dad play and he was just a wonderful, beautiful man. And I've gotten to go back and watch a lot of uh, video of him playing and listen to some of his songs. And I, I just think he is fantastic. So let's throw Hugo on there. This is tough because I, I do want to like, you know, like again, I already told you, Eric is like, I'm, number two fan next to you. So Eric's got to be on there for me. If it's, if it's, we're, we're including the whole community, people who kind of extend beyond the genres. Um, So Eric, certainly Donnie, I mean, how many, how many, so this has to be five, right? Cause this is Mount Rushmore or four. Mount Rushmore <laughs> had four, word? but then we're going to add a, uh, a non, okay. non-musician. Okay. God, this this is too hard. I know, but it's a good question. It, it, I, I need to start warning. It is a good you. question, but it's, <laughs> and Sandy did be able to do like research and like have a point system because there's so there's like <laughs> 10 people I would want to put up there. Okay. But we'll go with that. Um, yeah. Okay. Jerry but, Diaz. Again, like John, like JP, like John Patty, man. Yeah. I'm, can I throw John Patty on as my fifth? Just because sure, sure. like, I can't leave there. him off. He's incredible. JP. Yeah, okay. JP made it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Someday. After okay, so you like that? I so I, I do my throwbacks. I honor the kind of the the OGs who did yeah. a, kicked off a lot of this stuff and responsible for creating a lot of the the movement. And because again, like we've been talking about, a big part of this is that spirit of independent music. And, and without guys like Jerry back in those days, I don't think it grows in the same way. Building that like grassroots you know, artist, listener connection, you know, and then I've got my new blood on there with Donnie and Eric. There you go. Uh, I'm extremely, extremely biased here, but I think um, a thing that really sets Jerry apart from anybody else is his dual contributions as, as a musician, as a songwriter, as a band leader, but also Mm -hmm. he started meeting the minds and then as meeting, as meeting the minds, yeah, as Meeting the Minds yeah. became a PHIP thing, he started Party Girl and really set this template for um, an artist-ran event. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people have learned a whole lot from Jerry and Party Girl and, and his his uh, destination trips. You know, so I think Jerry's contributions are like 
come from two different directions. Um, and again, I'm extremely biased when it comes to Jerry Diaz, but uh, I, I think, you know, I, Jerry gets no, a ton amen, of, man. I think, he, I think that you're absolutely right. Yeah. He gets a ton of due as an artist, but I think uh, as somebody who paved the way for, uh, you know, for, I mean, for people like me, you know, I mean, obviously like I wouldn't, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, but one for Jerry and also Hugo, um, yeah. Hugo was probably the original, like um, Mike Nash, Kitty Stedman, you know, br- bringing a yeah. country, a real country yeah. vibe to the, to the scene. So, yeah. yeah. So. And it, you know, he, but people connected with him so much because of, again, the honesty in his songs and the way he lived his life was authentic, you know? And of yeah. course, you know, I've got to, again, like I got to give huge credit to, to Kitty and Mel as well, because man, they're, they're taking this genre in new directions as well. And I'm so impressed with um, their musicality. They're both extremely talented, but their work ethic as well. And the way that they just conduct themselves and have brought their show around the country. And it's, I'm just, it, they really have a great presentation and I think their live shows is pretty much unmatched. I think that uh, there's, uh, we've got a long, a lot of folks are going to be hard pressed to match what they're doing in terms of like the way they've worked out uh, the little choreographies and the, the, the kind of banter between them, I think is awesome. Yeah. And they bring to their, especially at a festival, you know, when they're only playing one set 90 minutes or so, they bring an intensity that nobody else in the community yeah. brings yeah. to a, to a festival set. Just, I mean, naturally most of the artists in the scene are going to be a little more laid back, but, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're, yeah. they're coming at you a hundred miles an hour. So, well, Brendan, man, it was good to oh. talk to you and I appreciate you doing this. Um, we got to hang out with you some, a few months ago when you were here and, uh, hopefully we will be able to bring you back to Texas in 2021. Hopefully, you know, like life will be back to normal. And and hopefully we can do the Nashville show. Yeah, uh, that was a bummer because uh, you, me, and Kitty all put in a fair bit of effort to put in to get Pirates of Hopes mm-hmm. into Nashville. We were going to do it the morning after the Buffett show, and then COVID nineteen just screwed it all up. So hopefully we can do that. Uh, make that happen. Twenty yeah. because it would have been good. Well, I'm excited for that, man. I, w- I would love to have you into my town and. We'll, we'll have some fun with it. I'm, I'm excited for this podcast, and I appreciate you having me. I'm looking forward to listening. Uh, I appreciate you doing it, and I uh, hope to see you soon, my friend. Be good. Sounds good, man. You as well. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks.